But I want to talk about a little bit um, what an awakening looks like. Who's familiar with awakenings that have happened? Great awakenings have happened throughout revival history. If you're, if you, you know, if you've studied revival history or you've studied, um, you know, the history of the church at all through the centuries, then you're probably like, yeah, yeah, I love this stuff. Because like, if you studied it, you love this stuff. Because that would be why you would study something on your own. Um, but revival history is very, very interesting. And um, it's happened before. So awakening happens throughout these different seasons in the church. There's a church that's been around for a while, 2,000 years, actually, to be exact, 2,018 you know, years or something like that. Um, but it's been around for a while. And it's gone through seasons, right? We can look at history. We can see the different seasons that something's gone through. Humanity has gone through seasons. But there's certain things that say, hey, an awakening is about to happen. Because you can look at history to know the future. Almost in everything, right? Steve works in fashion. You can look at history to know the future. He can tell you basically what's going to be cool in like two years. How does he know that? Because he's looking at the trends and he's looking at what's already taken place and he's looking at, well, generally this is how humans respond to X, Y, Z and this is what generally happens after that. Well, if camo was cool right now, well then in two years, camo's not going to be cool. It's going to be plaid. It's going to be that people are like, yeah, right. And then look what we're wearing in two years later. It's what came after that because we look to the past to understand the future it's the same in the spirit it's the same with what god is doing obviously he does not repeat himself it's not like he just goes oh i guess it's revival time like that's not the way it works but the way that we respond to what god is doing the way we can recognize can actually bring what he wants to do already but god always partners with us so he doesn't just like do stuff by himself that's right Sorry if I'm messing with, like, sovereignty stuff in people's minds. Because some people think God's just up there, like, deciding everything, deciding everything. That's not the way it works. God partners with us. God's ultimate plan will always be accomplished. Human beings have no say in that, right? So God has this ultimate plan that's the sovereignty of God over all things. Will Christ come again? Yes. Will the devil lose? Yes. A bunch of stuff's going to happen in the middle. And whether you're going to be a part of that or not is up to you, not up to God. So I want to talk about what happening, what happenings in an awakening. <laughs> I can speak English. Speaking of which, have you heard the word woke? Yes. That's a word that young people say. Woke. I heard that recently. Actually, I saw it on a Levi's ad for uh, SNL. It's my favorite. Please watch it. It's so funny. I was literally in tears. But anyway, it's uh, they're talking about being woke, and I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary for real. It's a word. It says someone who was once asleep or ignorant, but has now woken up to the truth. Well, <laughs> so what would it look like for society to get woke to Jesus? Not just to social injustice, but like to all the things. Because to get woke means to wake up something you didn't already know. It means you were sleeping to that thing before. But now you're awake. It's called an awakening in English. But then in the Urban Dictionary, it's woke. But awoke, awokening. Instead of to awokening. Yeah, that's like the modern term. But you know, a spiritual awakening is actually a term, right? To have a spiritual awakening, it means that you have a shift in consciousness, right? A realization of a reality that was previously unrecognized, right? Welcome, you guys. Hi, everyone. Welcome. No worries. You're not interrupted. Just come on in. We love you. We love you. Welcome. It's so nice to see you. I'm glad you're here. Don't worry. You guys don't have. You guys are great. We love you. Welcome. Just started. No problem. All right. 
So, eyes back on me. Hello. So a spiritual awakening. A spiritual awakening. We're talking about what makes an awakening. A spiritual awakening. It's a shift in consciousness. It's the realization of a reality that was previously unrecognized. Who's heard of the Moravians before? Thank you. Like, we have some scholars in the room. What's up? Moravians are this group of people. They were refugees from Eastern Europe in like the early 1700s. Refugees from Eastern Europe. They were being heavily persecuted. And so they fled into Germany. Count von Zinzendorf, cool name, he hosted them on his estate. And essentially this small group of refugees, known as the Moravians, began, essentially they did a hundred years of prayer and worship. They were Christians. And they actually began the missions movement, the modern missions movement that we understand today. We think it was America who did that, but it wasn't. They actually sent out more missionaries than anyone in history from that random estate in Germany in 1700s. And so what happened, they were sending out all these missionaries all over the world. Now, John Wesley, who's heard of him? He's more popular. Started the, started the Methodists. Back then, didn't look anything like it looks now, but that's another story. He started the Methodists, okay? But he didn't even actually want it to be a denomination or whatever. He just obeyed God and started what God told him to do, right? And so John Wesley was actually an Anglican minister, but he did not know Jesus, believe it or not. Believe it or not, it's possible. So he had been trained in ministry. He had done all this stuff, and he was actually on his way to start a mission in the Americas, the colonies. And he had this encounter with the Moravians, with Moravian missionaries who were out in the water. And so these missionaries had a different kind of relationship with God. He was unfamiliar with them. They were praying all the time. They were speaking in tongues. They were doing this stuff that was a little bit like, what? Like, who are you guys? And so he has this encounter with them, and it's intriguing to him. Long story short, he ends up getting, like, actually saved through these Moravians, actually finding Christ and having an encounter with God. And out of that, entire, the entirety of England was changed. The entirety of England went through revival. So what are the ingredients to an awakening? Because what was England like at that time? And if you're interested in that, like, just read about it. It's so cool. It's such a cool story. I don't have time to talk more about it. But I want to talk about what happens in an actual awakening. Because what did society look like in 1740? This is when this is all taking place. So he gets, like, radically encounters God, like, 1743. I think it was, 1743, 46. Society was, like, at its absolute worst. Like, the worst that it could ever be. Everything like deep social divides, deep pain. Sound familiar? The worst condition, ethically, morally, like everything that could be happening, it was the worst. There was no influence of the church and culture. It was absolutely separate, and the church was dying. What did the church look like? Well, dying, like I just said. It was religious, inward focused, not affecting the culture, division inside the church. How? Now, what happens in, in this situation is that the leader, God raises up leaders, and he encounters them. Dramatically, This is what happens every awakening. So everything looks like that. The church is dead. Society looks pretty dead. Everything's pretty bad. And then all of a sudden, people start having encounters with God that drastically change their view of God, their view of the church, their view of the world, their view of how they can change those situations. Everything drastically changes for that individual. And it happens almost instantaneously. And this is a main ingredient for an awakening. Leaders are encountered. And so there's people in this room that I know have had that type of experience within the last year. 
There's people in this room, this very room. And there's people who haven't had that experience yet, but that's why you're here. (laughs) Someone is powerfully shocked out of dead religion, or they're miraculously healed, or something happens that radically changes them. And that radically changes their view of themselves and their ability to impact the world. See, John Wesley encounters Jesus. He's filled with the Spirit. And then he responds to this call. So this led him, right? He reforms the church. He challenges things that aren't scriptural. He starts doing things that are absolutely radical for the time. Like meeting outside. That was radical, apparently. Singing a song that you wrote yourself was radical. Radical. Like persecution. (laughs) Radical. Um, So he was really doing things that, like, you know, studying the Bible, like with believers. Crazy. Um, Sending people to pray for the sick or sending people to minister to people who were not ordained ministers. This was radical for the time. But he was responding to what God was asking him to build. He actually started something called the society. And he started these small groups all over England. And they were small groups of people that met in homes. Sound familiar? And they would pray, and they would worship, and they would study the Bible. So these groups started growing and expanding all over the place to the point where Europe was radically changed, and history says it avoided civil war. Because so many people found Christ during that time period. They would do these insane open-air meetings where, like, thousands and thousands of people would show up. It was was just crazy for the time. But the point was, God was calling him into something new that had never been done. It was an awakening. That's what God does in an awakening. He calls people into something that's new and that's never been done. And the fruit of that awakening, obviously, was that culture was transformed. That's how you know the church is working. That's how you know it's doing its job. Because you can look around at culture, and culture has been impacted by the move of God. If culture's not impacted and it's just you inside the walls, you're not, you're not changing anything yet. Like, it's not an awakening. It's not a, like that hasn't happened quite yet if it's just us in here. We can look at culture and see if it's working, if God is doing this. So guess what came right after that? The Renaissance. The Renaissance came right after the awakening of Europe. So when the Spirit of God comes in, guess what comes out? Creativity. Justice. Peace, unity, all these things come from people stepping in to what God has for them. The message that actually brought all this fruit and the message that actually brought all of this transformation, guess what the main message is in any awakening? Repentance. Repentance. Who would have thought? John Edwards, he's in, he's in Cal, uh, not California, that didn't really exist yet, at least not to white people, but anyway, um, in the colonies... John Edwards would go around on horseback, right? And he'd go into all these churches and he'd be preaching like, hey, hell, da, da, da. People were like, oh, what must I do to be saved? You know, falling on the ground and all these things happening. He wasn't like, you know what? God just loves you and he has a plan for your life. Like that is true, but that just wasn't the message that brought awakening. And that's the point. Because I think we all know God loves us and he has a plan for our life. I think what we've got to look at, are we walking in that? Are we walking in that? Because if you're not walking in that, you probably haven't experienced repentance. I knew that God loved me and had a plan for my life, but I had never repented, so I was experiencing zero fruit in my life. Repentance is the only door. It's the only door. It's the laying down of our life in exchange for Christ. It's the only way to fruit in our life. It's the only way to purpose. There is no other way. We talk about Isaiah 8, or sorry, 55, 8 through 9 quite a bit. Which God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, 
as my thoughts are high, or sorry, um, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there's two things that God says about his ways and his thoughts. He distinguishes them. They're different. Mm -hmm. So how many people know that the things the world thinks and the things that God thinks, they are different? You can look at the way the world is and you can look at the way God is perfect. And you can see the world is not perfect. Mm -hmm. So they probably are not thinking God's thoughts. You can look at the things that the world does and you can see the things that God does and you can say the world is not doing the things that God does. His things are both different and he says they're higher. So when we come to Jesus with our own thoughts and our own ways, we actually don't have the choice to say, can I have my own ways and my own thoughts and then also come to you? He's like, no, you can't. And then we're like, please. He's like, no, still no. So it's up to us. We lay down our ways, we lay down our thoughts, and we enter the kingdom. And we're prepared that any of our ways or our thoughts could change. Any of our ways, any of our thoughts can be changed by him because guess who's in charge? It's him. It's him. His ways are higher. His ways are better but they're not unknowable do you know that they're not unknowable his ways are different and they're better but they're not unknowable but the only way to know them is to enter through christ in first corinthians 2 6 through 10 it says we do however speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Do you know that that's exactly what he's saying here, what Paul is writing to the Corinthian church? All the things that you couldn't know, that you couldn't figure out because God's like way over there and you're way down here. Guess what? Jesus made it so that God's not way over there anymore. He's right here. Now the things he knows, the things he does, who he is, is accessible to you. It's accessible to me. The deep things of God, it says. In the Greek, it says mysterion. Do you know what that word means? It means mysteries and secrets to which initiation is necessary. Mysteries and secrets to which initiation is necessary. The counsel of God that was once hidden but is now revealed. So the counsel of God that was once hidden but is now revealed is accessible through Jesus. And it's the only way. We can only have the wisdom of God, but the initiation is Christ. If we want his wisdom, his ways. Christ is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life, actually, is how he explains it. But he says he is also he is the way to know the truth and to have a life at all. <laughs> to have life. Because life as we know it goes on. We have eternal life, the Bible says. But the only way to eternal life is through the door, which is Jesus. He's the initiation to know the thoughts and the mind of God. There's a pattern in an awakening that is interesting. Um, we talked about it a little bit recently but there's this pattern of sustaining because how many i mean we can look in history and we can say wow these like amazing things happened they're still not happening which means that they stopped fair Mm -hmm. so if something started and then it's not happening now it means it stopped at some point why so there's this pattern that um, humanity gets into right so usually an awakening begins with the awe of god with the fact that god is big you know i am like surrendered to God, write this message of humility and repentance, and people come into revelation of that. 
truly. And in our society, how many know we need a revelation of the awe and the wonder and the reverence of God? Most of the modern church does not have that. That, You know, we use the Bible to, like, make up things, basically. We use it to define things, to redefine things. Basically, like, is the Bible even real? Like, does it even matter? Like, we're asking questions like that now, which is so weird. (laughs) We need an awe of God. The fact that he is full of justice and mercy and love. However, who he is, we don't deserve. Except through Christ. He made us deserve it because he loves us the most. You know, I heard someone say, the one we should fear the most is the one who loves us the most. So thank God he's the one who loves us the most. But let us at least have that view of him where we understand that although we are partners, although he loves me, although I'm called to be like his son, although he's my father and I'm his son and I'm his daughter and I can run into his lap and I can give him a hug, he's also God. And he can be in charge. He can be in charge. Do you know that awe leads to this experience of the fear of God, right? The fear of God that is healthy, Mm -hmm. healthy, because when you know the nature of God, you don't think he's out to destroy you. You know that he loves you. And so your fear of him is not because you think he's bad or you think he's going to get you. Your fear of him is in understanding who he is and in awe of the fact he would even want you and love you and like desire you and put you in this place with his son. Mm. It's amazing. We can never take that for granted and get familiar with God. And out of that fear, out of a deep fear of God, guess what comes next? The the realization that God is bigger, that his ways are right, that he does the right thing. What comes out of that is that I repent. I surrender. I give up anything that's in me that's not in him. Out of repentance comes holiness. We want holiness. We don't want to live how we want and then just like say, hey, can I find that something in the Bible to like make ex- an excuse for the way I live? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you probably can. You can put it on Facebook or something like that and you'll get a couple likes. You'll be like, oh, I never thought of it that way. I'm going to do that now. Good luck with that. But if we actually want a true presence of God, that comes through holiness. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't come through making up weird theologies and just saying whatever we want. Mm-hmm. It comes through holiness. And out of holiness, the power of God is poured out. You know, there's four different kinds of, of presence. There's four different kinds of glory. Like, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, well, the presence of God, you know, it's everywhere. It's like with me because I'm a Christian. True, true. But there's four different kinds of presence of God. There's the presence of God that covers the earth, right? You, talk, you know, my, I cover the waters, I cover the earth, I'm everywhere. That's not the exact verse, but you know what I'm saying. It's in Psalms. So the presence of God is everywhere. <laughs> Covering the earth. That's called the omnipresence. It's everywhere. Then there's the presence of God that's indwelt. It's in me, it's in you, it's in everybody who believes in Jesus. It says his spirit comes to live inside of us. That's the indwelt presence of God. So then one step beyond that is the manifested presence of God. So that's when two or three gather together in my name, right? There I am in the midst of them. And then here we are all together. The presence of God is here, obviously because we're here and we carry the presence of God. But there is a different kind of presence, like when somebody walks in the room. They're here in a different way. Because we are gathered together. And so we feel him. We respond to him in a different way. That's why a lot of times in worship or in different, you know, prayer meetings, things like that, you're like, whoa, I feel God. God is here. It's like, well, he was here already, but he's like here, like more, right? But then there's actually something beyond that that many of us may not have experienced yet. And that's called the glory of God. That's right. That's right. That's something that doesn't leave. That's something that rests and remains, and you only carry that through holiness. 
There's no other way to get to glory than holiness. We can be in a prayer. This is why you can see people in prayer meetings, those who grow up in like charismatic background. You can see people in prayer meetings and they're just doing all this stuff. And then you're like, but like, I know your life. This is so weird to me. It doesn't even make sense. That's because it's not about them and their life. It's about the fact that God is here. And like, you're going to do weird stuff when God is here because like his presence is powerful. It has nothing to do with your character. The fact you're responding to the presence of God. Like, that's cool. But when you carry glory, it's because you're holy. That's right. And because your life reflects him. And there's no other way to carry his power in that way mm-hmm. than through living a holy life. I wish I had another hour. Because <laughs> I want to talk about something Seriously. else and I got I to gotta move on. But you know what? In First Colossians, read it yourself later. Because <laughs> it's so good. I can't even read it because I will preach the whole thing. Then I will not have any more time. Read First Col- or Read First Colossians. There's only one. Read Colossians. <laughs> Read First Colossians because it's the only one. And even if you look for First Colossians, you will find it. Um, Colossians 2 through 28. But in verse 27, Paul is speaking to the, um, to the church at Colossae and he says, Christ is in you. It's the hope of glory. Mm-hmm. Christ in you is the hope of glory. What happens when God's glory goes somewhere? Imagine. When God is somewhere, what happens to that place? Well, for one, it comes under the lordship of Jesus. What happens under the lordship of Jesus is everything Jesus wants to happen, which is good things, mm-hmm. thankfully, like healing, like justice, like holiness, like repentance, like presence. Like we get downloads from God. We get commissioned by God. We get sent. Like all these things happen when the glory of God is present. And what about in the earth? What happens when God's glory is present is things start changing. Remember we talked about a sign of an awakening is that things change in society. That people themselves have been awakened and so they act in awakened ways. They're woke. (laughs) So things start changing. They start starting things. They start changing things. They start transforming things. Society looks different. That's the hope in us. That's the hope in us. But it's only in us when Christ is in us. We don't have a hope of glory without Christ. So for those of you who are dying to make a difference and you're full of justice and you're full of a dream and you want to change the earth, uh, yes and amen. God has called you to that. He has put a burning desire in your heart. But guess what? Christ in you is the only hope of that ever happening. Do you know that prophecy and dreams are an invitation? They are not reality until we step into Christ. Yeah, yeah. We can have so many dreams and so many prophetic words and be like, oh, this lady said one time when I was three that I was going to change the world. Cool. That's great. That's an invitation for you to surrender your life to Jesus so that he can do that with your life. Because he wants to. He wants to. He wants to do it with my life. So many times it almost didn't happen. I can tell you that. So if you're in that place and you have this, I feel like God, there's something on this for somebody. Like you had like some major dreams. When you were young and something has happened, like you feel like, oh, it's just going to happen. Oh, it's just like all oh, time. You don't have time. <laughs> now's your time. I'm not saying you're going to die. I'm just saying now's the time. <laughs> this season is the time where God is calling you. You don't have time to wait is the point. You don't have time to wait. Now is the time of preparation. God is calling you. And God told me before uh, today, he said, today I'm going to commission people. And they're going to go out from today. And they're actually never going to be the same. There's a calling that God has on your life that you need to surrender to today. Today. So that you can prepare. Say yes. Say yes. I mean, I wasn't even saying. Thank you for responding. But I was just saying to whoever that person is, say 
yes, but also thank you everyone else for saying yes. Everyone says yes. Okay, yes, and amen. Because there's a great cause. There's a cause. Jesus says, there's a cause. There is a cause. But there's also great callings that are associated with that cause. Because for a great cause, there has to be great people. Great people who will step up and actually assume the calling. Do you know that the Holy Spirit can bring awareness, but then we have to respond to his awareness in repentance, which brings hope and restoration to everything else through us. So for 10 minutes, I want to just talk. Oh, I wish I had so much more time, but... Okay, who knows that Rosh Hashanah begins tonight? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I know you know Maria. <laughs> yeah, Maria. I was waiting for you. I was like, where's Maria? Because I'm going to talk about, like, you know, holidays and stuff. Um, so for Rosh Hashanah, for those of you who don't know, you guys need to read Leviticus. Let me talk to you. We don't know these things because we don't read Leviticus. We think it's just like rules and stuff, which a lot of it is. But there's other things in Leviticus, things we need to know. So Leviticus 23 talks about the feast. God talks about appointed times. He talks about appointed times in the year. And these are times which God himself has set aside. And he said for all generations. So as far as I can tell, we're still alive and people are still living. So we are still all generations that are set aside to focus and set aside these appointed times by God. And they're a foreshadow of Jesus. This is why it's so important that we look at these things now. It's not because we can just like celebrate a cool like Jewish tradition and learn about what it used to be like in Israel. But like that's cool, the historical significance. But no, every appointed time tells us something about Jesus. Something that otherwise we would not fully understand. And so this time is actually amazing. Rosh Hashanah is called the Feast of Trumpets. Right? And this leads into 10 days of awe, which then ends with Yom Kippur in 10 days. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll through this. So if you're interested, I can. Yeah, I wrote a blog post about it that I'd love for you to read. Um, but Rosh Hashanah was marked by the blowing of a trumpet 100 times. The blowing of the trumpet is a reminder to Israel of God's freedom and coming liberation. The trumpet, guess what a trumpet is? When we say trumpet, it's not like, it's not that. It's a ram's horn. Where does the Bible first talk about a ram? Where does the Bible? Yeah, shofar. I used to think that was so weird until I understand what it was. Abraham. In the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, is when we first see the appearance of a ram. So then go forward to Genesis 22, when Abraham hears God. He says, go take your son, your only son, who you love. That language sound familiar? Your only son, who you love, Jesus. Take your son. And sacrifice him to me. This is what God says to to Abraham. So Abraham takes his son, goes up to Mount Moriah, and he's going to sacrifice him. And all of a sudden, he sees a ram caught. God says, stop. Don't sacrifice your son, clearly. Um, This was just a test. (laughs) This was just a test. You really want to step in at the right time in that one, right? God's like, hurry up. Like, he sent the angel. He's like, please, get there on time. Um, Anyway, I could go on. (laughs) I was going to go in Daniel. I'll be like, I was held up for 21 days. We're like, not that time. Okay. So he sees a ram caught in the brush. He grabs the ram. He sacrifices the ram in the place of his son. And this is the place where God reveals to Abraham, I'm the God who provides. Okay. So... Oh my gosh, this is so good. Well, ah, I won't have time to say it all. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. But I just want to find Anyway, so God says to Isaac, he'll provide the sacrifice. He provides. He reveals himself. I'm the God who provides. Abraham names the mountain the God who provides. The first time God reveals himself as a provider. Now, this was the sound to remind people the Savior is coming. Liberation is coming. Freedom is coming. 
The horn was blown in battle to remind people that God will fulfill his promises. It was the example of victory. Remember when God led Israel into the promised land? He said, march around Jericho, but just don't talk because you guys will ruin it. And then on the seventh time, blow the horn and the walls will fall down. Again, a picture of delivery. Again, it's a picture of everything's Jesus. Everything's Jesus. Just open the Bible. Jesus. It's just like every page is Jesus. That's all it's talking about. Literally, the only thing it's talking about is Jesus. So this is the sound to remind people. The Savior is coming. The last time the Bible talks about the sound of a trumpet, guess what the last time is? The signal to tell people that Christ is coming back. That he returns for his church. It's the last time he blows his trumpet. So guess what happened on Mount Moriah 2,000 years after God provided? Jesus. Yes, the answer is always Jesus. And it is Jesus. Guess what happened? On Mount Moriah. Guess what Mount Moriah was later called? Golgotha. So the place where God provided, he said, I will provide the sacrifice. 2,000 years later, he provides the sacrifice of his own son in that very place. Jesus. Jesus. It's the beginning. So Rosh Hashanah, it's the beginning of the civil new year for Israel. Every 50th year was called the Jubilee year. Who's ever heard about this? People love this. You're a jubilee. Like, never used to hear messages on that. You're a jubilee. The year of jubilee was pretty awesome. If you want it to, you probably only get one in your life because it was every 50 years. So one time in your life, you would experience a jubilee. And boy, it was a good time. All your debts were canceled. All your land was returned. If you were a slave, you were set free. Everything, like, was made right in the 50th year, the year of jubilee. Property was restored. Inheritance Every slave, like, this was a good year to be alive. Like, everybody's happy in the year of Jubilee. But then what would happen? So hold that. Hold that in your mind. Poop, and then, like, come back to it. Ten days of awe is the time from Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year, the civil new year, the time when everything clicks over. Ten days of awe was the time when all of Israel would go away, and they would look inward, for reals look inward, because if you didn't really repent, like, you were cut off from Israel. So it was, like, serious. Like, is there anything that I could have done? That was accidentally a sin. Like, did I spit on the Sabbath? Like, you're thinking of everything. And you're repenting, repenting, repenting. Then the Day of Atonement came on the 10th day. The Day of Atonement was a day every year where the high priest would lay the sins of the people onto two goats. One of those goats became the sacrifice for the sins of Israel. The other was released by the community into the wilderness. And it's called a scapegoat. Ah, yeah. See, we don't know. We're so, we're so Christian. You guys don't even know. Like, the culture is so Christian. There are all these things running around. We don't even know. There's just Christian knees everywhere. So the scapegoat led into the desert, carrying Israel's sins away from the camp. So for a short time, maybe, you know, five minutes until you sinned again, you felt totally free from sin. Right? It was like this, like, wow, the burden has been released. Also, I'm not cut off from the people because I'm living a repentant life, which is also a picture. Anyway, so we know that Jesus is the final sacrifice. His death, his resurrection, gives all believers total freedom from sin. In Luke 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, what passage of scripture does he read? Isaiah 61. What is Isaiah 61? You guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. I'm going to like tie it all together. And I did it real quick. I did it really quick. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. I'll just read it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Okay, that was 1 through 2. Now here's the thing. When Jesus stood up in the temple in Nazareth and he read this scripture passage, it was to inaugurate his ministry. When he read this scripture, he's talking about what? What is this actually referencing? Year of Jubilee. 
that we just talked about. This is referencing the year of Jubilee. But Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He has sent me. I will liberate. I will set free. He's referring to himself as Jubilee. I am Jubilee. (laughs) This picture that God gave you, it's not that. It's me. And it's not once in your life. It's your whole life. It's not once a year. It's every year. I am Jubilee. Because guess what he leaves off? Remember when people, like, during that 10 days, they had to repent, repent, repent. Otherwise, I'm going to be in trouble. Like, God's going to judge me. I'm going to be cut off. And so they really repented, like, really good. And so then Jesus, he says, I'm here to announce to you that the time of the Lord's favor has come, period. He left off and the day of the Lord's vengeance. (laughs) Because that's not coming. Because Jesus absorbed the vengeance for you. This is what Isaiah 61 talks about when Jesus is reading the scroll. Jubilee is not only fulfilled, I myself am Jubilee. I am eternal Jubilee. Yay! Now everything's restored. The slaves are set free. Your land is returned. Your inheritance is back. Everything. It's in me. The day of repentance was to purify before God, right? So leading to the day of atonement. And so now what does that mean for us? Obviously we're not scared, scared, scared that God is going to judge us if we don't repent, repent. It's a reminder though that Jesus took our blame, our punishment, the judgment that would be coming, for sure. He took it. And so now, how do we respond to that? Because we have a choice in how we respond to God. We have a choice in how we respond to Jesus. Sometimes we just accept Jesus, like we pray some prayer at summer camp or whatever, and then we just live our life, and then we're like, you know, it doesn't matter how I live. Wrong. (laughs) It matters, like, so much how you live. (laughs) So much. Do you know, we will all stand before Jesus, and we will give an account for our life. This is talking about Christians, not (laughs) non-Christians. Is that not everybody who received Jesus Christ as Lord will stand before him and give an account for the life that you lived and what you did with your salvation. Salvation is a gift and our life is a response. Our life is a response to that. Very good. And guess how that verse goes on, Isaiah 61. So first Jesus in 1 through 3, he talks about, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set everybody free. I'm going to basically be Jubilee forever. Then it goes on to, this is what they will do. This is, this is they now. This is not Jesus. Who's they? Raise your hand. I am they. You are they. They, 61.4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They will revive them, though they've been deserted for many generations. Do you know it's our foundation verse? God spoke to us about that verse in the very beginning before we ever started this church and before I ever knew it was associated with this day, which is kind of cool. So this is the foundation verse of our church. That's why we call this church Revive. Because God is sending us into broken cities, broken places, and we will revive them. This room may have, I don't know, 50 people right now, but it won't next year. I can tell you that. God is pouring out his spirit on the earth. Awakening is coming. And I'm telling you, it's up to you whether you want to be a part of it. I want everybody to stand up. You'll get an email tomorrow telling you about how to participate in the Days of Awe. It's cool. Just read it and do it. Trust you. Can't tell you about it right now. But as we enter into this time of awe, really, restoring the awe of God back to ourselves, restoring the awe of God back in our life, let's actually ask God what he wants to show us in that time. We actually, the purpose, see the purpose of this, this act, the purpose of the Day of Atonement was so that none of the sins of the prior year, none of the bondage of the prior year went into the next year. That's actually the point. It's not so that we can look inward and be like, I'm so messed up. I have so much stuff to work on. Why? Because, you know, anything you have to work on, God gives you the grace to fix it anyway. Just, like, acknowledge it so he can change you. It's easy. And people can help, too. But I'm telling you, it works. 
The purpose of this is that God's people don't live in bondage. That's why this exists. So every year we will engage in this because we do not want to take the bondage and the the crap and all the stuff from last year into next year. We want to look inward. We want to leave it down. We want to get healed. We want to get free and we want to move on. There is way more to do than to stay broken. I don't know why we glorify being broken in our culture. I don't even know why I'm saying this. It's not me. No, I'm just, I'm going to say it. I don't know why we glorify being broken. Sometimes you say, oh, I just really like so respect your like transparency. I get it. Be honest and be authentic with your life and with your journey. But there is a time to grow up and it's now. It's now. The church needs to grow up. We need to grow up into maturity because there are things to do other than just like us all the time. 